Good morning, church. Before I forget, I do want to um, remind the men that there's a men's breakfast on June 5th. It's on a Saturday morning. It's at 7 o'clock. It's right here. And uh, I would urge you as strongly as I can, guys, to be at that breakfast. It's going to not only be great food and fellowship, I'm also going to share a little of the vision of men's ministry going forward. This is where we are. This is where we need to be and how do we get there and how you can be a part of it. So I'm excited about it. I hope you will be too, but I encourage you to be a part of that on June 5th. Sign up in the back on your way out uh, this morning. There was this large uh, two-engine train that was making its way across the country. And while crossing the western mountains, one of the engines broke down. And so the engineer made this announcement to the passengers, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is that one of our engines has failed. But the good news is we can carry on at half power to Denver and get a replacement there. Well, wouldn't you know, farther down the line, the other engine stopped working and the train came to a standstill in the middle of nowhere. Again, the engineer needed to inform the passengers about why the train had stopped and and so made the following announcement. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is that both engines have failed and we will be stuck here for a very, very, very long time until the additional engines arrive. But the good news is that you didn't take this trip in an airplane. (laughs) That's true. Now, to the engineer's credit, he's attempting to put a positive spin on a negative situation. We need more of that. In today's world, there is a lot of bad news, right? It's been reported that approximately 90% of all media news is negative. The amount of negative news in the media has doubled in the last five years. Why is there so much bad news? Well, as the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads, is true. Because the truth is, and studies have proven this, that people choose to read stories with a negative tone rather than neutral or positive stories, yet these same people, if they were asked, would say they prefer good news. Bad news sells. I read a while back now of one Russian newspaper uh, that the city reporter actually lost 66% of its readers when it only published positive news stories for a 24-hour period. Studies show that headlines with bad news attract 30% more attention. What effect does all this bad news have on us? Well, it's been said that just three minutes of negative news in the morning can ruin your mood for the rest of the day. Have you seen that one going on? I have in my life. I shared in the epistle this past week how I need more joy in my life. And I know that one contributor to a lack of joy for me is because I'm frequently checking the latest news stories. And I find out I'm not alone in that. 
One out of 10 adults in the United States check the news every hour on their device. Now, I might not do every hour, but it's frequent enough. Bad news runs rampant today. It is the order of the day. You might remember the, the Ann Murray song. It said, I rolled out this morning. Kids had the morning news show on. Bryant Gumbel was talking about the fighting in Lebanon. Some senator was squawking about the bad economy. It's going to get worse, you see. We need a change in policy. There's a local paper rolled up in a rubber band. One more sad story. One more than I can stand. Just once, how I'd like to see the headline say, not much to print today. Can't find anything bad to say. Because nobody robbed a liquor store in the lower part of town. Nobody OD'd. Nobody burned a single building down. Nobody fired a shot in anger. Nobody had to die in vain. We sure could use a little good news today. Amen? We are in need of good news in a bad news world. Well, we continue in our study in the book of Daniel on being a bright spot in a dark world. And we left off last week in Daniel chapter 9. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. It's always good to follow along if you can. Now we looked at the first 19 verses last week that included a lengthy but magnificent prayer of Daniel. And the bulk of that prayer was confession of sin. You see, sin is the epitome of bad news. And what's the answer to this? People want to know, is there any hope? Well, we'll see today God's answer to Daniel's prayer of confession and petition. So look with me at Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to be picking it up in verse 20. My first heading this morning is a flying visitor. A flying visitor. All right, verse 20, Daniel 9. This is Daniel speaking uh, in the first person. He says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, or holy mountain. It's speaking of, uh, of Mount Zion. But I want us to see here that Daniel is praying for God's glory, not his own indulgence. All right, it continues, verse 21. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, back probably in chapter 8, Gabriel came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now notice here that the flying visitor came while Daniel was speaking and praying. Verse 20, and while I was still in prayer, he says in verse 21. He didn't even get to say Amen. That's how quickly an answer to prayer can come. God might already be orchestrating and working on an answer to your prayer before you even ask it. I can't get my mind around that, but it's true. Helen Roosevelt, a missionary to the Congo, told the story of a mother on her mission station who died. The mother died after giving birth to a premature baby. And they tried to improvise an incubator and to keep the baby alive, but the only hot water bottle they had was beyond repair, just broke. And so they prayed for the baby, and they also prayed for the little sister who is now an orphan. And one of them prayed, Dear God, 
Please send us a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late. And dear Lord, send a doll for her sister so she won't feel so lonely. That afternoon, a package arrived from England and the children just stood by as, as, as the others opened it. And to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. And immediately the girl who had prayed dug deeper into the package. She was sure God would also provide the doll she prayed for. And she was right, there was a doll as well. But the amazing thing about this, if it's not already amazing enough, is that five months before that morning prayer, five months before that morning prayer, God had led a women's church group to include both of those specific items that they'd arrive on that day. God knows you need. He may be working on an answer to that prayer even before you ask it. And so while Daniel's praying, God's already sending an angel to give him the answer. And his prayer is interrupted by this flying visitor who's identified as Gabriel, and it was an angel who took on human form. But I want us to see also the end of verse 21 tells the angel came when? About the time of the evening sacrifice. Now what's interesting about this reference to the evening sacrifice is that there had been no sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem for quite some time now since the captivity and when Jerusalem was destroyed. But for Daniel, he still tells time according to his religious calendar. He says, this is what I do at, at 3 o'clock. This is what I do at this time. This is what I do. He still functions on Jerusalem time because God's clock is his clock. Well, verse 22, he, Gabriel, instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. And so the purpose of this flying visitor is to give him insight and understanding. The answer he brings is meant to be understandable. Now remember the content of Daniel's prayer that we looked at last week. What concerned Daniel was the sins of his people that he identified with. He wasn't praying for understanding. He wasn't praying for insight into future things. His heart was for the purpose and plan of God to be worked out in the city of God. His cry was for mercy. And so God sends this flying visitor to assure Daniel that he's heard his prayer. God wanted Daniel to understand his unwavering commitment to fulfill his promises. He wants Daniel to understand. Now, why did he do this for Daniel? Well, verse 23 answers that. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed or greatly loved. Or as one translation puts it, you are treasured by God. Daniel is precious to God. And so are his prayers. This isn't saying, by the way, that God loves Daniel more than he loves other people. But I do believe he's saying that because of Daniel's heart for God and, for, and his desire for God's will to be done and Daniel's uncompromising character that it put Daniel in this position to receive this answer from God that he was about to give him. The answer we're going to see in a moment here in verses 24 through 27. But I want us to linger here just for a minute longer. I want us to linger here. Might there be a connection between a life lived for the glory of God 
and receiving what it is that God wants to give us. I mean, are you, am I, living in such a way that puts us in a position to receive God's blessing? Do we have not because we ask not, but also because we live not according to the will of God? And I want to be in that place where God can trust me with big things, eternal things. In Luke 16, verse 10, Luke 16, verse 10, it says it plainly. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Can God trust me? Can God trust you? Well, God can trust Daniel with much. So this flying visitor comes with a speedy answer to his prayer. And the answer comes in a, in a good news, bad news kind of way. And so we go from the flying visitor to some fascinating verses. Some fascinating verses. Verses 24 through 27. I don't know if you read ahead or not or know it's here, but they're very intriguing verses. There, there's, this, there's this fascination with this section of Scripture. Most commentaries spend far much more time on these four verses than they do in the previous 23 verses. Most commentators agree that this is one of the most difficult passages in the book of Daniel. And that's the only thing they agree on. <laughs> that's it. And often, when it comes to interpreting prophecy, people are drawn to hearing the deeper, hitting meanings. Linus was in deep thought. He was thinking about the meaning of famous nursery rhymes. The way I see it, Linus tells Charlie Brown, the cow jumped over the moon means a rise in farm prices. What do you think, Charlie Brown? Do you agree, Linus asks? And Charlie Brown replies, I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. Cow jumping over the moon, I guess, prophetic literature. Well, I don't pretend to have all the answers to the many interpretive issues around these four verses. I reserve the right to change my mind. Maybe even by the end of today. I don't know. And frankly, frankly, I, I'm quite nervous around those who have it all nice and neat. I don't attend this morning to give you the many ways these verses are interpreted. I don't think that you'd be any better off if I did. You can check that out for yourself. That's fine. But we mustn't forget that this prophecy was given in answer to Daniel's prayer of confession and petition. Often it's been ripped out of that context, honestly. This was given so that Daniel would understand. There's something for us to understand here. Westminster Confession puts it this way, not all parts of the Bible are equally understandable, but all that is necessary for understanding salvation is made perfectly plain in the Scriptures. And a principle of interpreting Scripture, and you can tuck this away somewhere, but the principle of interpreting Scripture is that, is that when we interpret what is unclear, we ought to interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear and not the other way around. A principle of interpreting Scripture is that we interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear and not the other way around. 
And many have gone way off base because they take an obscure, unclear passage and build a whole theology on it. Whether it's this passage or others, I could give you examples of, but I won't bore you with that today. And you know, many come to passages like this and, and say, you know, the Bible's such a confusing book. I can't understand it. Why bother reading it? Well, as we saw, as we worked through the sermon series on the drama of redemption, the Bible is ultimately one story. There's one storyline throughout the 66 books. It's the story of the relationship between God and people. How it began, how sin ruined it, how it's restored, and how someday it's going to be perfect. We find all of that in these verses right here this morning. And so follow along as I read verse 24. Verse 24, it says 77s. Now, I need to stop there for a moment. The NIV has this right. Some translations say 70 weeks. It's literally 77s. The word seven, uh, you might look at it as it's like our English word dozen. We say dozen and we mean 12. Well, sevens represent years, not weeks. Most scholars and commentators agree on that. All right, let's continue to verse 24. I know you're thinking, Pastor, you need to pick up the pace a little bit. We're going to be here a while. All right, I'm going to. 77s, it says verse 24. 77s I decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, at face value, in a very natural sense, without overthinking it, we read verse 24 and we immediately think of what? The work of Jesus Christ. You ask any small child with even a limited understanding of the Bible who this is talking about, and they'd respond, this is talking about Jesus and what he did for us. So God's saying to Daniel, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is, the answer to your prayer is ultimately fulfilled when these six things here are accomplished. The bad news is, it's going to take seven times that number of years in captivity before it will be completely answered. It will be 70 years times seven years for a total of 490 years. Now, Daniel would have understood this concept of 70 times seven. The people were to celebrate the Sabbath every seven days. They were supposed to celebrate a Sabbath year every seven years. Check it out for yourself, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. You can read that. However, the people disobeyed the command of the Lord in keeping the Sabbath, and that was one of the reasons for their 70 years in exile. Leviticus 26, verse 35. I know you spent a lot of time in Leviticus probably this past week. God says that they would have the rest it did not have during the Sabbath you live in it. You see, they failed to observe 70 Sabbath years, so they were in captivity for 70 years. Now notice in verse 24 that it says that the 77s are what? Decreed or determined in some translations. Literally, it means to cut off something. The God 
was in control of history, has cut off a segment of time and used it for his purposes. This means that God is in control of history, that God has a plan. He's cut off this period of time of 77s from the rest of history for his redemptive purposes. Let's get a grip on the good news. And all the fascination of future things. We mustn't miss the significance of this answer to Daniel found in verse 24. It's in the context of Daniel's prayer of confession. Where they might be asking, is there any hope for those who have sinned and and rebelled and turned away from God and did not listen to God? Yes, verse 24, finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, which is referring to a place rather than a person. It's the holy of holies in the temple. The good news is that Jesus came to do away with sin through the sacrifice of his life, the sacrifice of his life on the cross. Jesus atoned for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might have a relationship with God. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. And Daniel is assured that an answer to the problem of sin will be dealt with even if he can't fully understand the work of the cross. And likely he could not. And for us, on the other side of the cross, we can see that the problem of sin was dealt with by whom? Jesus. Yet we're still waiting the final consummation, the complete fulfillment of Jesus' work in which sin is done away with for good, in which he establishes a kingdom of everlasting righteousness, it will be the end of that, and that time, day in the, in the future when, when the need of visions and prophecies will be gone. We won't need revelation from God anymore. And he will, when we will worship in the restored whole, most holy place, the temple of the millennial kingdom. That's what I think. I believe verse 24 is a summary of what Christ has accomplished in his coming. But it isn't all that it is. It isn't brought to completion until some other things happen first. Now you might recall when we looked at the book of Revelation, I spoke of a telescoping effect. When as we look at Revelation, same here, the Bible presents these things as both near and far. These words of Daniel stretch out from Daniel's day to the end of time as we know it. All right, stay with me. Verse 25. We're making progress. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed or determined. Now, I've got to be honest here. This is where many have tried to force a square peg into a round hole. There is a lot of hocus-pocus that goes on right here. (laughs) One commentary says we can understand this in a very literalistic way. And in his section, do the math. Do the math. He says this. 
From the first of Nisan, 444 BC, to the first of Nisan, AD 33, there are 476 years of 365 days, or 173,740 days. From the fourth of March to the 29th of March, there are 24 more days. If you add this to uh, its 160, uh, 116 days uh, for leap years, and the total number of actual days between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and Christ's death, there are 173,880 days. Who cares? Oh no, I'll give you more. After this comes an undefined gap of time, a break in the prophecy until the final last week, which is described in more detail in the book of Revelation. Gabriel spoke of 69-year weeks or 430, 483 years, Using a stylus prophetic 360-day year, this multiplies out to 483 times 360, which is 173,880. And guess what? That's the number we're looking for. Uh, of course you are. You can make any of it work. Is that helpful at all? <laughs> I agree. Uh, do you think for a moment that this would have occurred to Daniel to do the math. Now, what does seem apparent is that the 77s are then divided into three periods of time. The first period of time is referred to as seven sevens or 49 years. This period of time begins at the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, when did the people restore and rebuild Jerusalem? When they came out of captivity, in the time of Nehemiah, the people returned from exile back to their city. And, and, and that would be really good news uh, to Daniel's ears. Jerusalem and the temple will be restored. Bad news is, is that it will be rebuilt, it says here, in times of trouble. There's going to be much opposition to the rebuilding of the city. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you see they had all kinds of opposition to the rebuilding of the city. In times of trouble, they would rebuild it. And so the rebuilding of the walls in the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, which was still future for Daniel here, marked the beginning of what comes next, the 62 weeks. That's the second period of time, I believe, referred to here. It's in this time period, the second period of time, that takes us from the time of Nehemiah all the way to the first coming of Jesus. Now some do the math to get it all worked out to the exact day. The problem is, for some in doing the math to the exact day, they land on the incarnation, the time of Jesus' birth. Others go, no, 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 that's not right math. I got another math, and if you can make it fit to the exact day being the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, the baptism of Jesus. No, 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 it's the triumphant entry. That's what it goes to. No, 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 it's his crucifixion. I don't think it's about doing the math to pinpoint the exact day. But what we do know, that God had a specific plan in which Jesus the Messiah would come and deal decisively with sin. Now church, that's good news. The bad news is the Messiah would be cut off crucified in what would be near the end of the second period, the 69th week. But the good news is, best news of all, is that when the Messiah dies, he will, be, he will be the final sacrifice for our sins. The great work of redemption would be accomplished. 
More bad news, however. There's one other event that takes place to close out the second period of the 69th week. Notice the middle of verse 26. It says, the people of the ruler or the prince who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. We've seen plenty of that. And desolations have been decreed. Now the specific event here, I'll just show my hand, I believe is referring to A.D. 70. What happened in A.D. 70? Well, history informs us that the Romans, under the leadership of General Titus, destroyed the city and the temple once again. And once again, it seemed like the end of Israel. And what Titus did in A.D. 70 foreshadows what's to come in the 70th week for the people of God for Israel. Like uh, Titus, like Antiochus Epiphanes, we saw him a few weeks ago. He's a type of the Antichrist that we'll hear more about here in verse 27. And in verse 27, there's a third period of time. Stay with me. It deals with the 70th week, the last, I believe, the last seven years of history prior to the coming of God's kingdom in all its fullness and glory. Look at what it says, verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, just for the record... There are some smarter than I am who see this as all happening in Jesus' first coming. It's all done. There's really not anything according to this, these verses, other verses, yes, but not these verses that we have something else we're waiting from the, these verses. That's all happened at Jesus' first coming. Some, some believe that. I'm just putting it out there to you. What we do know is that this ruler, he's a deceiver. He's a persecutor of God's people. And the ruler or the prince that's mentioned here, to me, sounds a lot like the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in John's Antichrist or the beast of Revelation chapters 13 and 17. But folks, what we have here is a general forecast of history from Daniel's time to the end. What God is doing in the world takes time. A lot of time. And for we who live in a world of instant gratification, we struggle with this idea. God, it's taking you way too long. Now. All right, what would Daniel understand? He'd understand that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, but then it would be destroyed again. Daniel would understand that in the future there would come an ultimate deliverance of God's people. Daniel would understand that God has a plan to deal once and for all with sin, an answer to his prayer of confession. Daniel would understand that God's people are going to suffer opposition time and time again from the world. But in the end, there would be eventual triumph. What do we understand? We understand that the most extraordinary thing that ever happened is that Jesus atoned for our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. Church, let's get a grip on the good news. Our final victory is certain. 
There is ultimate triumph for the people of God. Evil will not prevail. Will not. The wicked will face the wrath of God, but the people of God will be delivered. Let's get a grip on the good news in a bad news world. Jesus has secured our salvation. Maybe three minutes a day of looking at that might change my mood. Edward Young put it this way. He said, the emphasis of the 77s is not so much upon the beginning and termination of this period as it is upon the great results which, this, which the period has been set apart to accomplish. What God has purposed, he will accomplish. Really, there's no value or very little value spending too much time debating the details of these verses and whose interpretation is correct. It would be like two people arguing so intensely at an airport about the exact time the plane would arrive that the plane came and went without them. That's what we're doing. When's it going to be? I got it marked on my calendar. I think we can figure it out. Let's do the math. Meanwhile, we're not doing what we ought to be doing. We need to get a grip on the good news and let it grip us so that we're alert, we're ready, and we're doing his work until he returns. We're about advancing his kingdom. We're spending time on giving good news in a world where there's full of bad news. See, in our fascination with future things, let's not miss the obvious. Lone Ranger and Tonto, they were camping in the desert. And they set up this makeshift tent, and soon they fell asleep. Several hours later, the Lone Ranger wakes his faithful friend. He said, Tonto, look up and tell me what you see. Tonto looks up and he replies, me see millions of stars. And what does that tell you, the Lone Ranger asks. Tonto ponders for a moment and says, well, astronomically speaking, it tells me there are millions of galaxies. Astrologically speaking, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Time-wise, it tells me it's approximately a quarter past three. Meteorologically, it seems like we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. Theologically, he says as I look up, it's evident the Lord is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. When I look up, that's what I see. That's what it tells me. What it tell you, Kimosabi? <laughs> the Lone Ranger is silent for a moment and he speaks. Tonto, don't you get it? Someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> Do we miss seeing the obvious? Do we? We're debating this, arguing that trying to figure everything out, and we're missing the obvious. We got it all tight sometimes, our T's crossed, I's dotted. We're missing the obvious. There's great news and a bad news world. Let's get a grip on that. And let's share that good news with others, because that's really what matters.